Good morning. Glad to see all of you here this morning. Welcome to our worship service. I'd like to give special welcome to some visitors there in the back. I understand Reinhilda, some family of yours, is that correct? Brother? So we are very happy to have you here. Welcome. What an exciting, I'm sure an exciting visit. So this is, this is great. Glad to have you here. Others that are here visiting with us this morning, welcome as we come before the Lord. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for the cross. Keep us near the cross. Lord, even in the song uh, we sang, that its shadows are o'er us, above us, Lord, as we remember what you did for us on the cross, Lord, you also call us to, to bear that same cross, whatever all that may mean, Lord, be able to enter into your suffering, to uh, take on your death in our lives. Lord, as we, as we seek your face this morning and as we look into your word, help us, Father, to see you and to understand what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for those songs, David. I was thinking this last song, Jesus, keep me near the cross. In a week we celebrate Easter, and Easter is the culmination of, of course, the whole weekend. Good Friday is, is remembering Jesus' death, and we're so grateful it didn't end on the cross, but it ended with the resurrection of Jesus, and it's because of that that you and I have hope today. That's our only hope, is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet we sing songs about, keep me near the cross. It's not a it is a symbol of Christianity, but it's not, it's not a relic. It's not something we, uh, it's not a charm, but it's a remembrance that part of being in Christ is that we also die like Christ. We die to our old self, and the new man um, comes alive in, in, uh, in us. This morning, we call this a Youth Sunday, and the message this morning is simple. It's nothing complicated, and as I was thinking about what to preach. You know, we, had a, we just had a week of meetings. You, you've heard a lot of teaching. You've heard a lot of different things. And I was trying to think, what, what more can you say? You know, sometimes we kind of get maybe a little oversaturated and uh, feels like, what else can you take in? But I, I've been thinking about you as youth um, already a couple weeks ago. I knew this was coming up, and I was thinking about what to what to preach to our youth in this day and age. All of you youth are growing up in a um, well, in an age of opportunity and an age of challenge. The opportunity lies in the fact that you've grown up in probably the, probably the best time in history, uh, at least if you're here in the United States. Now, this isn't maybe true worldwide, but you live in a nation and in an era of time that has offered you more freedoms, more choices, more opportunities, more wealth for the, for the average person than any time in history. That gives an opportunity on one, on one hand, but the same freedoms and choices and wealth and all those things also bring you some of the biggest challenges of all time because there is a pull. There is this magnetic pull for your heart's affections. And we're in a time where we actually have time for leisure. And when, when there's time for leisure, in other words, what I'm saying is we don't live in an era where our daily existence just to survive is a struggle. Now, there, that is true in some parts of the world, but where we're at, we actually have time to think about leisure, and we have time to think about 
what else we can take into our lives. And those are an option. And so it's so easy, not just for you youth, but so easy for us to begin to overindulge. And, you know, with, with our leisure and with all these things, that, that magnetic pull of, of all these opportunities, they actually can become a big challenge because our life can, can get pulled away from, it, from its primary purpose. We heard some of that in the last week. But I want to just draw you to think for a little bit about what's going to make your life successful. And how does the world measure success? Um, when I was younger, probably more after I was a youth and, and, and older than that, I always liked reading a newspaper. It's one of the pleasures of life that we've kind of lost because there was something about getting the newspaper and you just, you know, you went page to page and there it all was and it just, you absorbed it, you saw the pictures and the articles and, and now it's, you know, it's, it's internet-based, so so much of it is just little, you know, we just, we get overwhelmed, I get overwhelmed with all the, the news out there, but USA Today was one of my favorite newspapers, and so you'd get the newspaper, and it was thick, and it had, it had all these different sections, and I was thinking about how did, how, what does, what does the world value? Well, it doesn't take long to figure out what the world values when you look at the newspaper, and you'd open up USA Today, and you have, you know, there's a section on, on politics, and there's a section on money. And there's a section on sports. And there's a section on entertainment. And as you, as you read through those different things, it comes out every day, every day. What's, what's happening in politics? And I thought, well, what, what does the world value about that? Well, the world values, it values power. And it values position. So in a sense, you could say a value of the world is, what's your position? You know, we, we see politics. Who's who in politics? Who is, you know, who has the upper hand? Another section is, this whole section on money, whether it's economics or, or how to grow your portfolio or you know, where to invest, and the entire section of the newspaper on money emphasized the world's values of what do you have? How much do you have? And then you get into the sports page, and you look through all the sports and everything that's happening in all the sports world, and the world emphasizes, well, what can you do? You know, who's the best? How do you measure? You know, it's amazing sometimes there's these, there's these discussions of, Who's the greatest of all time? Is it Michael Jordan? Is it LeBron James? And, and all these different, and, and it's important, you know? It's just who actually has the upper hand? Who, who has it? So there's a value there. And I, I think it's interesting sometimes, and I think it, it speaks to how our world values this, is, you know, s- sports stars are often asked their opinions on things that have nothing to do with sports. You know, they, they weigh in on, on current issues. I'm like, what do they know? I mean, they know how to play sports, but the value there is, is if you've attained that, you're somebody, and so therefore what you have to say matters. And then, of course, the other section, and there's more, but I, I picked out four, is entertainment. You know, what's the latest movies, or who is the greatest, you know, who's this, this pop singer, or all these things, and, and they follow their lives, and all the dramas, and people love to, to follow their celebrities, and oh, what, you know, and then then you hear about celebrity sightings. You know, oh, somebody saw this celebrity over in some city and, and like, okay, great, but, but that's a value. And so when the world measures success, look at what the world promotes and look at, at how they talk about it. And so if you're in one of those areas, if you've done well financially, if you've made it in the inter- entertainment industry, you're a, you're a movie star or you're a famous singer, if you're a sports star or if you've made it in politics, that's how the world measures it. That is success. Well, when Jesus came, he ushered in a completely different way. And we, he, he, he ushered in the kingdom of God, and it's been called, in fact, I think there's even a book titled this, 
it's been called the upside-down kingdom because in the kingdom of God, all those things I just talked about, they don't matter. And in the kingdom of God, that is not how value is measured, and that's not even how success is measured. And so in this upside-down kingdom, because the world values these things, we become countercultural. We don't become countercultural just because we try to always do what's opposite of the world, but just by the very nature of the kingdoms, one kingdom measures success by achievement and by what all you do. The other kingdom measures success by, by obedience and by faithfulness to that kingdom. And its king is Jesus, of course. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And I think this idea of coming into one, from one kingdom into another, he captures it well in this introduction. In Colossians chapter 1, I'd like to read verses 9 through 14. And this is actually a prayer of, of Paul's. He's actually praying for the church. And in his prayer, you, you get to understand what his, uh, maybe what his priorities are, he'll, are, are in here. Verse 9 says this, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Just pause there briefly. He's praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you would get to know what is God's will, what does he want, wisdom, spiritual understanding, that you would know those things. And then he also prays that they would walk worthy. So with their knowing comes a faithful life of walking with the Lord. And then he also prays that they would please him and be fruitful. That means as you walk with the Lord, your life is it's fruitful. There's influence, and you're, you're being fruitful in God's kingdom. And even as you do this, the end of verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. So you get this idea through Paul's prayer that as you are as you're walking with God, all these things are taking place in your life. That's what he prayed for. But then I want you to catch verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I believe verse 13 is a present-day reality. God has, it says he has, I think the King James says he's translated us, he has conveyed us into the kingdom of his dear son. So as Paul prays for them, for all these things to happen in their life, he wants them to walk worthy. He wants them to grow in their thinking. He wants them to be fruitful. And he says, God has conveyed you from this kingdom into this kingdom. So you have now come into a different kingdom. Flip your Bibles now over to Matthew chapter 4. The title of, of this message this morning is very simple, and it's this. Follow me. Follow me. In Matthew chapter 4, this is right before the Sermon on the Mount, and it's when Jesus begins to call some of his disciples. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, look at verse 17. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brothers, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. I'm, that's all I want to read for a text from there this morning. There's other accounts in the Gospels where it records when Jesus called people to follow him. But here he comes across these fishermen. Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, and it, it just gives us the brief account. It doesn't say what all they're feeling. We can, we can assume a lot of things. But something about his call to them made them want to respond. And he's, the call was simple. He says, follow me. And he used, he used the very thing they were doing. It says they were fishermen. They were humble fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And that, that phrase has been running through my mind for the last couple of weeks. Follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Why should we follow Jesus? Why Jesus? Well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Is that right? I don't think that's disputed here this morning. Jesus made claims. He said, I and the Father are one. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. So when someone makes a claim like that, either they are a liar or they're telling the truth. Well, we already sang this morning about the cross, and we believe in the resurrection. So there's, I don't think there's a question here this morning that Jesus was saying, saying the truth because of the evidence of the resurrection. But he claimed to be the Son of God. I, was, I had a good conversation this last week with Shaheen, a brother here. And we were talking about, um, I, I asked him a little bit about if he believed in Jesus. At, growing up in, in a Muslim faith, did he believe in Jesus? And as I understand him, Shaheen, you can correct me if I'm wrong, right? But yes, he said they believed in Jesus, and Jesus was a good man. He was a teacher, maybe a prophet. I'm not sure exactly how he described it. But Jesus was a good man. And Shaheen was challenged, I think he said about 30 years ago, by a pastor in Bremen, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And can you, if you accept that, that's a big step for a Muslim. How many of you have ever read the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus? Have any of you ever read the book? Some of you have. Uh, Nabil Qureshi, he was a Muslim. Same journey here. And at some point, had to reckon with the fact, if Jesus says he's the son of God, and he makes those claims, and if that's true, then that changes everything. And I think that choice, maybe for a, if you come from a Muslim background, that's huge. Because if you accept that, it, it changes pretty much your entire worldview. It changes your it changes your faith. And if Jesus is the Son of God, therefore, he is God. And I need, to, I need to follow him then. So, since we know that, that he is the Son of God, when Jesus calls us to follow him, then it means that whatever claims he makes, we believe those to be true. I don't think any of us disputes that the commands of Christ are all to be followed. But whatever demands he makes on us also become um, our obligation. He is, since he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, then his commands become my obligation or maybe even my priority. So that's why we follow Jesus, because he's the Son of God. And he verified that by coming to this earth, dying, rising from the dead. 
So I'm, I'm preaching to the choir on that. We all, we, I think we all believe that, and yet it's, it's central. It is central to our faith, is that to, the reason we follow Jesus is he is the Son of God. So how do we do it? If Jesus says, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men, how do we follow Jesus? Youth, what does that mean for you now, as you think about the world you're living in and the life that you have now? How are you going to follow him? Well, we heard a message this past week, last Sunday night, about the evidence of the new birth. So, of course, the new birth is, is essential. In John chapter 3, when Jesus was talking to, to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes to him at night and he has, these, he has these deep questions, Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 3 of John 3, he says, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I think that's an important phrase. He cannot see. It doesn't say that he cannot enter, which that's also true, but he cannot see. In other, in other words, the eyes to see the realities of God's kingdom, those eyes are closed unless you are born again, unless you have the divine nature inside of you. So to someone who's struggling to believe, it is confusing. It's hard to figure this, this whole kingdom. That's why they call it the upside-down kingdom. The values of the kingdom don't make sense unless God's spirit is within you. So he said, unless you're born again, that's the starting place. Young people, if you're not born again, you're going to have a hard time. You can't follow Jesus. That's just the bottom line. You cannot follow him if he's not within you because that's where the illumination of the Holy Spirit comes. We see the kingdom of God at the new birth. Another thing we heard in the last week was um, it's not just about starting, it's about finishing. So that's simply entrance into the kingdom. But then how do we live out? Like what is expected of us in this kingdom from this point on? We start to see the reality of the kingdom, but then what, what does it mean? Uh, you don't have to turn here, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 11 to 14, I'm kind of jumping in uh, to the passage because I don't, I don't want to take too much time here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 to 14 says this, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Very basic. How do I know what's in your, do I know what's in your thoughts? Jenna, I don't know what's in your mind right now, right? He says, how do you know it except the spirit of a man, the person within, they know their own thoughts. Well, then he says, even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So who knows the thoughts of God? Do you? I don't. Not without help. So he says this, only the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God or knows the things of God. So then he says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Does that make sense? So as, as we receive God's Spirit, now we start to get a handle on, well, what is God? What does God think? What does God, what does God want from me? And so our our understanding of life in the kingdom comes from we have to be connected to God through his spirit. That's the only way we're going to know the things of God. That's the only way we can know the mind of God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So if you have someone who mocks faith, if you have someone who says this doesn't make Christianity is it doesn't make sense, it can't. It says to him it is foolishness because the only way it makes sense is if you have the Spirit of God. 
and it has to be the Spirit of God within you which reveals to you God's truth. These things are spiritually discerned. So it is imperative, young people, that as, you're, as you come into God's kingdom, you need God's Spirit to show you what is it that I'm supposed to be doing in His kingdom. He's the one who reveals to us what God desires. As we, and as we read the Word, it, it becomes uh, further illuminated to us. So what, what shall we... Um, I guess I put a bit of a summary here. How do we follow him? Well, we all come, we are all maybe on a different path. We're all, on this, we're all on the path of following God, but we're, we're at different places of understanding. A young child can come to a basic faith and a trust in God. Jesus said you need to come like a child, childlike faith. But some of you here have had years of walking with God. So how do we get there? But it's as, as we know and as we understand we live what we know. It's one of the, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me put it this way. Live in faithful obedience to what you know. And as long as we are not quenching God's spirit, he will continue to show us. I forget how Calvin said it in the last week, but the idea in my mind is as you come up again to maybe to another truth or as you come up to God calling you to more, we obey again, and his spirit continually leads us through life in that way because he wants us to become more and more like him. That's following. We follow him through, through his spirit. So I want to ask you, young people, a question here. So what the implicate, if you're going to follow Jesus, because I think every one of us says, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. And that's just, of course, we want to follow Jesus. What are the implications of that choice? As Paul said, are conveyed into a new kingdom. If that's the case, then our citizenship has changed. We go from citizens of this world to citizens of the kingdom. Now, I still have a U.S. passport. I'm still on paper a citizen of, of this world, but in a spiritual sense, my citizenship, my identity has gone from the world's priorities to the priorities of, of God's kingdom. That's the implication. So my, my walking with the Lord, it's not, it's not just a one-time event where I confess my sins to God and, you know, that's my ticket to heaven and now I keep going on with life. But I've actually, that's simply the entrance. I've actually come into a new kingdom with new priorities and with a new mindset. And that, that mindset is going to result in me being part of an upside-down way of thinking. It is counter-cultural. It is different and has the different priorities of the world. Uh, many of you know who Dean Taylor is. He wrote a book called A Change of Allegiance. And in, in his journey... He was in the military, he was a Christian, and as he started to read through the scriptures, he began to, to wrestle with what he saw in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the passage I read to you this morning about Jesus calling his disciples, it's right before you get into the Sermon on the Mount. And we often, I think we correctly say that the Sermon on the Mount, that was, that's the ethic of the kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts to say the hard things that they just, they, they don't match the world. They don't, they're not the same. It's a different mindset. And, and so uh, for Dean Taylor, as, he, as he, he said he was reading the Bible, and as he was reading through the Sermon on the Mount, he was in the military, and he was starting to wrestle with what does it mean to love your enemies, and, and what does it mean if Jesus says this. Uh, he made the comment to his wife one time. He said, you know, as he was reading through the Sermon on the Mount, he said, what if, what if Jesus actually meant what he said? And he said in his mind, he thought, if I were to go and do everything opposite of what it says in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if I do opposite of that, it would be kind of like the American church. 
Well, that's a broad statement. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying anything with that except to say followers of Christ are going to be committed to do exactly what the Scripture says. Now, I know sometimes we're probably pretty strong on certain things. And, you know, we have strong commitments to, um, against divorce and remarriage because that's in the Sermon on the Mount. We also believe we are to love our enemies. And so, therefore, you know, we don't pick up, take up arms and go to Afghanistan or to wherever. And yet, and yet we're kind of detached maybe sometimes from the everyday reality of following Christ. Because in that same sermon, he says, don't lay up treasures on earth. Well, that one gets us a little bit closer, right? Does he mean it? If I'm going to be part of his kingdom, am I going to live by the principles of that kingdom? I was just looking back at um, what did some of the early Christians and then later on even some of the early, early Anabaptists, what was the thing that they were that they were seeking? What made them different? I think one of the things they came up against early in the Reformation, and this is, this is very broad. There's much more nuance probably. But in general, when they saw some of the good things that were happening in the Reformation, and, and you have to think of what the church was like at that time. You, know, you, you could buy indulgences. You, know, you could buy, like, you get, you get to have so much sin if you pay so much money. We all know that that's just, that's a perverted form of, of the gospel and Christianity. That's not what it was. And instead, um, the early Reformation, and Martin Luther was talking about, it's by faith. We come to God by faith. And I think maybe where some of the departure for the Anabaptists was, is they saw that, yes, it is by faith, but if there's no change of life, then what is faith? James talked about that. Without, if, there's no, if there's no works, faith is dead. And so there was this, this looking at Jesus. Okay, it's not, it's not just that we, we get right thinking or that we see these teachings of God's kingdom and we say, okay, if I, if I believe right, then I'm on the right path. I mean, that's a start. We have to, we have to believe correctly about the scriptures, but it very clearly means, James says, we're not, I mean, we're not saved by our works, but clearly the works are that fruit. Our works come out of following Christ. So the reality for them was, was that, was that Christ, he is the living word. It, Christ was central in the scriptures. And so we read the scriptures not just to find, not just to find truth, but we, we look in the scriptures to find the giver of truth, the giver of life. So for us, as, as we think of ourselves as new citizenship and new identity, there has to be the presence of Christ within us. There has to be a relationship with God, and that's what we live out of. Otherwise, it becomes dead. It becomes simply, um, it becomes dead works. So following Christ is an active living thing. It's an active experience. We seek to know him. and We obey his word because we love him. So maybe if you would define... Um, I don't want to just draw attention to, to Anabaptism. I want it to be, I think we need to look at Christ. But I think where many of those came from was an idea of how do we interpret the scriptures. It's not simply just another way or, or here's another way of doing faith or another denomination. But how do we view the scriptures? And I think 
I think the commitment we need to make to the scriptures is, if this is what Jesus says, then we need to do it. And that becomes very personal and very difficult at times. Love your enemies. Don't treasures on, on earth. All those different things he teaches there. And I think at some point I'd like to maybe go into more on the Sermon on the Mount and what is, what is the specifics of God's kingdom. But in general, life in God's kingdom, there is a commitment that we follow Christ and we follow him where he leads and we, we take on the values of his kingdom. Those are the implications of the choice to follow him. And now the last part of our verse. So he says, follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Isn't that interesting? The entire life focus changed for these fishermen. They came as just rough everyday laborers and Jesus took them from that, and he says, I'm going to change your priority. You're going to become fishers of men. So one of the things that happens uh, is it becomes, it becomes his work. He says, I will make you. Jesus is interested in your change. Jesus is interested in making you become what he wants you to be. We have to agree to that. So the first part, when he says, follow me, that's our choice, right? Either I choose to follow him or I don't. The second part, he says, I will make you. That becomes his work. It's an ongoing work of change in our lives that you can only describe how, how Peter and Andrew and James and John and all the apostles, you saw how they started, and, and it was a rough road. You know, the three years of, of with Jesus, there's just a lot of hiccups along the way. But they became men that were committed to the vision. They became committed to the purposes of Christ and his kingdom, and all of them but one according to history, became martyrs at some point. How is that possible except that it becomes his purpose? If you're walking with him, it becomes his purpose to make you into that. You're going to become a fisher of men. So God, he does that by shaping you, by pruning you. God brings hard things into your life. That's why he brings you trials. He brings you all kinds of things. Is because he's trying to lop off those areas in your life that keep you from being from being who he wants you to be and being able to be an effective fisher of men. So he says, I will make you fishers of men. We have a change of priority. Uh, young people, I think what we get faced with in our day to day, I talked to you at the beginning about, about all the challenges you have and all the, all the things that you could do. You know, we're not just surviving. We actually have, we have time for leisure and all these things that we could do. And it's too many times we try to have the values of both kingdoms. You know, feed the desires of the flesh on one side but also we want, we want to follow the Spirit. So there is that internal conflict that we have, to, we have to realize that our priority has changed. We now become focused on what does God want in his kingdom. To truly be a follower of Jesus will mean that I will be about his business. My life focus centers on Jesus' priorities. So when Jesus said, I will build my church, that's going to become my priority. When he says, I'm not willing that any should perish, I'll come to repentance, that becomes my priority things that he cares about, the things that he wants, or the things that, that I desire as well. And here, the, uh, lastly here, it also is, it um, dictates a change in my character. I already talked about that a little bit. How did God take rough fishermen and make them um, followers of him? He took them through a path. And there was a point in his ministry, I, I was looking in John chapter 6, as the multitudes were in, uh, continuing to increase and they were you know, there was a big following for Jesus. Jesus starts to say some hard things. I think it's in John chapter 6 when he's talking about 
you know, they had experienced the bread. You know, you remember the feeding of the 5,000 and, and all this supply. And if you're thinking of Jesus as being, you know, this revolutionary who is about to kick out Rome and just the excitement of, finally, deliverance is coming and he's actually going to feed, you know, all that in their minds. And then Jesus starts to say things like, you know, you have to feed on me. I'm the bread of life. And you have to hunger after me. And you have to thirst after me. And it says, after that, there was many disciples that they were offended by that. And it says that they, they left him. That's just too hard. That's not the Jesus they wanted to follow. And so Jesus turns to his disciples after many followers had left. And Jesus turns to them in John 6, verse 66. says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. At some point, it takes faith. Peter and the other disciples at this time, they were still, I don't think they fully understood it yet because Jesus had not yet died and risen from the dead. But at some point, they made the choice to follow Jesus and they said, Jesus is thinking, are you going to keep following me? And they're, they're probably saying, well, what else do we do? We know you are who you, is, you say you are. You have the words of eternal life, and we're willing to put all our eggs in that basket. We're willing to obey you, whatever that means. And Jesus continued to take them on a journey that led them places they probably never dreamed they would go. How do we become effective in fishing for men? You're never going to be effective at fishing for men if you're not following Jesus in your own personal life. We cannot draw others into a kingdom of which we are not participating. We cannot fish for men if we're not following Jesus in full obedience in our own personal life. And a second reality here is we're not going to be effective in fishing for men if we never cast a line. We have some fishermen here in our midst that really enjoy fishing. And, you know, the reality is, is they never catch any fish if they're not out there throwing out a line, right? Just, you don't catch fish. If Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, there still is, there still is a point where we have to participate. You will not bring people into the kingdom if you're going to shelter yourself and if you're going to isolate yourself and try to live just your little private world of, of Christian living. He wants us to be the fishers of men that are out there. And he says, cast a line. That might mean, you know what all that may mean. That may be speaking into the lives of those um, that you rub shoulders with and offering words of hope and encouragement, sharing the gospel. But you will not be an effective fisher of men if you don't do it. So we have to do it. We have to cast, we cast a line, throw out our nets. Be faithful with the opportunities that God places before you. I thought of that different times. How many times have I missed opportunities? And it's so easy sometimes to think of, of this idea of fishing as being it's out there somewhere. Like, I got to go fish. You know, I have, to, I have to have this time set up to go do my fishing. But we're walking through daily life every single day. How many times does God bring people right to us and we miss it and we're not throwing out our net? We have to be aware that we are fishing all the time. And don't give up. Don't give up. 
I know sometimes we, we, we do those things, we can be faithful and all that, but we get discouraged because we don't see results. A patient fisherman keeps casting because he knows somewhere down there, there is a hungry fish. And I just, I got to keep casting because at some point, that right fish will come along and he's going to take the bait. Doesn't mean that's always that he changes the bait, but he keeps fishing because he knows somewhere there are those who are hungering and thirsting. Somewhere out there, brothers and sisters and young people, there are those who are thirsty for something more. They want something more. And when the right person comes and speaks into their life, they're ready to take that bait. They're ready to, to uh, enter into the kingdom. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Closing Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3, says this. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So you're seeking those things which are above. Your priority has become, what, is, what does God want in his kingdom? What does he want me to be doing in his kingdom? You set your mind on that. And then he says, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It has to be Christ. Your life must be hidden with Christ in God. If you're going to do your Christian life on your own, or you're just working out of performance, then you're never going to find God's purposes. You're never going to be able to accomplish what he says when he calls you to become a fisher of men. So don't forget, you died. And when you died, you were brought into a different kingdom. And as you set your affections on that kingdom, as you seek after God, as you hide yourself in him, then it says he's going to make you a fisher of men. Shall we kneel? Let's kneel for prayer.